Section two of Castles in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Castles in the Air by Baroness Emushka Orksi. Chapter one. A Roland for his Oliver. Part two. It was a little after five o'clock when I once more turned the key in the outer door of my room in the Rue Duneau. Theodore did not seem in the least to resent having been locked in for two hours. I think he must have been asleep most of the time. Certainly I heard a good deal of shuffling when first I reached the landing outside the door, but when I actually walked into the apartment with an air of quiet unconcern, Theodore was sprawling on the chair bedstead, with eyes closed, a nose the colour of beetroot, and emitting sounds through his thin, cracked lips which I could not, sir, describe graphically in your presence. I took no notice of him, however, even though, as I walked past him, I saw that he opened one bleary eye and watched my every movement. I went straight into my private room and shut the door after me. And here, I assure you, my dear sir, I literally fell into my favourite chair, overcome with emotion and excitement. Think what I had gone through. The events of the last few hours would have turned any brain less keen, less daring than that of Hector Ratichon. And here was I, alone at last, face to face with the future. What a future, my dear sir! fate was smiling on me at last at last i was destined to reap a rich reward for all the skill the energy the devotion which up to this hour i had placed at the service of my country and my king or my emperor as the case might be without thought of my own advantage here was i now in possession of a document two documents each one of which was worth at least a thousand francs to persons whom I could easily approach. One thousand francs! Was I dreaming? Five thousand would certainly be paid by the government whose agent Monsieur Charles Soré admittedly was, for one glance at that secret treaty which would be so prejudicial to their political interests whilst Monsieur de Marsan himself would gladly pay another five thousand for the satisfaction of placing the precious document intact before his powerful and irascible uncle. Ten thousand francs! How few were possessed of such a sum in these days! How much could be done with it! I would not give up business altogether, of course, but with my new capital I would extend it, and there was a certain little house close to Chantilly, a house with a few acres of kitchen garden and some fruit trees, the possession of which would render me happier than any king. I would marry, oh yes, I would certainly marry, found a family. I was still young, my dear sir, and possibly good-looking. In fact, there was a certain young widow, comely and amiable, who lived not far from Passy, who had on more than one occasion given me to understand that I was more than possibly good-looking. 
I had always been susceptible where the fair sex was concerned, and now, oh, now, I could pick and choose. The comely widow had a small fortune of her own, and there were others. Thus I dreamt on for the better part of an hour, until soon after six o'clock there was a knock at the outer door, and I heard Theodore's shuffling footsteps crossing the small anteroom. There was some muttered conversation, and presently my door was opened, and Theodore's ugly face was thrust into the room. "'I'll lie to see you,' he said curtly. Then he dropped his voice, smacked his lips, and winked with one eye. "'Very pretty.' he whispered but has a young man with her whom she calls arthur shall i send them in i then and there made up my mind that i would get rid of theodore now that i could afford to get a proper servant my business would in future be greatly extended it would become very important and i was beginning to detest theodore but i said show the lady in with becoming dignity and a few moments later a beautiful woman entered my room. I was vaguely conscious that a creature of my own sex walked in behind her, but of him I took no notice. I rose to greet the lady and invited her to sit down, but I had the annoyance of seeing the personage whom deliberately she called Arthur coming familiarly forward and leaning over the back of her chair. I hated him. He was short and stout and florid, with an impertinent-looking moustache, and hair that was very smooth and oily, save for two tight curls which looked like the horns of a young goat, on each side of the centre parting. I hated him cordially, and had to control my feelings not to show him the contempt which I felt for his fatuousness and his air of self-complacency. Fortunately, the beautiful being was the first to address me, and thus I was able to ignore the very presence of the detestable man. "'You are Monsieur Ratichon, I believe,' she said in a voice that was dulcet and adorably tremulous, like the voice of some sweet, shy young thing in the presence of genius and power. "'Hector Ratichon,' I replied calmly, "'entirely at your service, mademoiselle.' Then I added, with gentle, encouraging kindliness, Mademoiselle? My name is Geoffrey, she replied. Madeline Geoffrey. She raised her eyes, such eyes, my dear sir, of a tender, luscious grey, fringed with lashes and dewy with tears. I met her glance. Something in my own eyes must have spoken with mute eloquence of my distress, for she went on quickly and with a sweet smile. And this, she said, pointing to her companion, is my brother, Arthur Geoffrey. An exclamation of joyful surprise broke from my lips, and I beamed and smiled on Monsieur Arthur, begged him to be seated, which he refused and finally I myself sat down behind my desk. I now looked with unmixed benevolence on both my clients, and then perceived that the lady's exquisite face bore unmistakable signs of recent sorrow. And now, mademoiselle, I said, as soon as I had taken up a position indicative of attention and encouragement, 
Will you deign to tell me how I can have the honour to serve you? Monsieur, she began in a voice that trembled with emotion, I have come to you in the midst of the greatest distress that any human being has ever been called upon to bear. It was by the merest accident that I heard of you. I have been to the police. They cannot, will not, act without I furnish them with certain information which it is not in my power to give them. Then, when I was half distraught with despair, a kindly agent there spoke to me of you. He said that you were attached to the police as a voluntary agent, and that they sometimes put work in your way, which did not happen to be within their own scope. He also said that sometimes you were successful. Nearly always, mademoiselle, I broke in firmly and with much dignity. Once more I beg of you to tell me in what way I may have the honour to serve you. It is not for herself, monsieur, here interposed Monsieur Arthur, whilst a blush suffused mademoiselle Geoffrey's lovely face, that my sister desires to consult you but for her fiancé, Monsieur de Marsan, who is very ill indeed, hovering in fact between life and death. He could not come in person. The matter is one that demands the most profound secrecy. You may rely on my discretion, Monsieur, I murmured, without showing, I flatter myself, the slightest trace of that astonishment which, at mention of Monsieur de Marsan's name, had nearly rendered me speechless. Monsieur de Marsan came to see me in utmost distress, monsieur, resumed the lovely creature. He had no one in whom he could, or rather dared, confide. He is in the Chancellerie for Foreign Affairs. His uncle, Monsieur de Talleyrand, thinks a great deal of him, and often entrusts him with very delicate work. This morning he gave Monsieur de Marsan a valuable paper to copy, a paper, monsieur, the importance of which it were impossible to overestimate. The very safety of this country, the honour of our king, are involved in it. I cannot tell you its exact contents, and it is because I would not tell more about it to the police that they would not help me in any way, and referred me to you. How could they, said the chief commissary, to me, run after a document, the contents of which they did not even know? But you will be satisfied with what I have told you, will you not, my dear Monsieur Ratichon? She continued, with a pathetic quiver in her voice, and a look of appeal in her eyes, which St. Anthony himself could not have resisted. And help me to regain possession of that paper, the final loss of which would cost Monsieur de Marsan his life. To say that my feeling of elation of a while ago had turned to one of supreme beatitude would be to put it very mildly indeed. To think that there was this lovely being in tears before me, and that it lay in my power to dry those tears with a word and to bring a smile round those perfect lips literally made my mouth water in anticipation for i am sure that you will have guessed just as i did in a moment that the valuable document of which this adorable being was speaking was snugly hidden away under the flooring of my room in passy i hated that unknown de marsan i hated this arthur 
who leaned so familiarly over her chair, but I had the power to render her a service beside which their lesser claims on her regard would pale. However, I am not the man to act on impulse, even at a moment like this. I wanted to think the whole matter over first, and, well, I had made up my mind to demand five thousand francs when I handed the document over to my first client tomorrow morning. At any rate, for the moment I acted, if I may say so, with great circumspection and dignity. I must presume, mademoiselle, I said in my most business-like manner, that the document you speak of has been stolen. Stolen, monsieur, she assented, whilst the tears once more gathered in her eyes. And Monsieur de Marsan now lies at death's door, with a terrible attack of brain fever brought on by shock when he discovered the loss. How and when was it stolen? I asked. Sometime during the morning, she replied. Monsieur de Talleyrand gave the document to Monsieur de Marsan at nine o'clock, telling him that he wanted the copy by midday. Monsieur de Marsan set to work at once, laboured uninterruptedly until about eleven o'clock, when a loud altercation, followed by cries of murder and of help, and proceeding from the corridor outside his door, caused him to run out of the room in order to see what was happening. The altercation turned out to be between two men who had pushed their way into the building by the main staircase, and who became very abusive to the gendarme who ordered them out. The men were not hurt, nevertheless they screamed as if they were being murdered. They took to their heels quickly enough, and I don't know what has become of them, but— But, I concluded blandly, whilst Monsieur de Marsan was out of the room, the precious document was stolen. It was, Monsieur— exclaimed Mademoiselle Geoffrey piteously. You will find it for us, will you not? Then she added more calmly, My brother and I are offering ten thousand francs reward for the recovery of the document. I did not fall off my chair, but I closed my eyes. The vision which the lovely lady's words had conjured up dazzled me. Mademoiselle, I said with solemn dignity, I pledge you my word of honour that I will find the document for you and lay it at your feet or die in your service. Give me twenty hours during which I will move heaven and earth to discover the thief. I will go at once to the chancellerie and collect what evidence I can. I have worked under Monsieur de Robespierre, mademoiselle, under the great Napoleon, and under the illustrious Fouché. I have never been known to fail once I have set my mind upon a task. In that case you will earn your ten thousand francs, my friend, said the odious Arthur dryly, and my sister and Monsieur de Marsan will still be your debtors. Are there any questions you would like to ask before we go? None, I said loftily, choosing to ignore his sneering manner. If Mademoiselle designs to present herself here tomorrow at two o'clock, I will have news to communicate to her. You will admit that I carried off the situation in a becoming manner. Both Mademoiselle and Arthur Geoffrey gave me a few more details in connection with the affair. To these details I listened with well-simulated interest. 
Of course, they did not know that there were no details in connection with this affair that I did not know already. My heart was actually dancing within my bosom. The future was so entrancing that the present appeared like a dream. The lovely being before me seemed like an angel, an emissary from above, come to tell me of the happiness which was in store for me. The house near Chantilly, the little widow, the kitchen garden, the magic words went on hammering in my brain. I long now to be rid of my visitors, to be alone once more so as to think out the epilogue of this glorious adventure. Ten thousand francs was the reward offered me by this adorable creature. Well, then, why should not Monsieur Charles Souris, on his side, pay me another ten thousand for the same document, which was absolutely undistinguishable from the first? Ten thousand instead of two hundred, which he had the audacity to offer me. Seven o'clock had struck before I finally bowed my clients out of the room. Theodore had gone. The lazy lout would never stay as much as five minutes after his appointed time, so I had to show the adorable creature and her fat brother out of the premises myself. But I did not mind that. I flatter myself that I can always carry off an awkward situation in a dignified manner. A brief allusion to the inefficiency of present-day servants, a jocose comment on my own simplicity of habits, and the deed was done. Monsieur Arthur Geoffrey and Mademoiselle Madeleine, his sister, were halfway down the stairs. A quarter of an hour later I was once more out in the streets of Paris. It was a beautiful, balmy night, and I had two hundred francs in my pocket, and there was a magnificent prospect of twenty thousand francs before me. I could afford some slight extravagance. I had dinner at one of the fashionable restaurants on the quay, and I remained some time out on the terrace, sipping my coffee and liquor, dreaming dreams such as I had never dreamt before. At ten o'clock I was once more on my way to Passy. When I turned the corner of the street, and came in sight of the squalid house where I lodged, I felt like a being from another world. Twenty thousand francs, a fortune, was waiting for me inside those dingy walls. Yes, twenty thousand, for by now I had fully made up my mind. I had two documents concealed beneath the floor of my bedroom, one so like the other that none could tell them apart. One of these I would restore to the lovely being who had offered me ten thousand francs for it, and the other I would sell to my first and uncouth client for another ten thousand francs. Four hundred, bah! Ten thousand! shall you pay for the treaty, my friend, of the Danish or Russian secret service. Ten thousand, it is worth that to you. In that happy frame of mind I reached the front door of my dingy abode. Imagine my surprise on being confronted with two agents of police, each with fixed bayonet, who refused to let me pass. But I lodge here, I said. Your name? queried one of them. Hector Ratichon, I replied, 
whereupon they gave me leave to enter. It was very mysterious. My heart beat furiously. Fear for the safety of my precious papers held me in a death-like grip. I ran straight to my room, locked the door after me, and pulled the curtains together in front of the window. Then, with hands that trembled as if with awe, I pulled aside the strip of carpet which concealed the hiding place of what meant a fortune to me. I nearly fainted with joy. The papers were there, quite safely. I took them out and replaced them inside my coat. Then I ran up to see if Theodore was in. I found him in bed. He told me that he had left the office whilst my visitors were still with me, as he felt terribly sick. He had been greatly upset when, about an hour ago, the maid of all work had informed him that the police were in the house, that they would allow no one, except the persons lodging in the house, to enter it, and no one, once in, would be allowed to leave. How long these orders would hold, good Theodore did not know. I left him moaning and groaning, and declaring that he felt very ill, and I went in quest of information. The corporal in command of the gendarmes was exceedingly curt with me at first, but after a time he unbent and condescended to tell me that my landlord had been denounced for permitting a Bonapartist club to hold its sittings in his house. So far, so good. Such denunciations were very frequent these days, and often ended unpleasantly for those concerned. But the affair had obviously nothing to do with me. I felt that I could breathe again, but there was still the matter of the consign. If no one save the persons who lodged in the house would be allowed to enter it, how would Monsieur Charles Souret contrive to call for the stolen document and, incidentally, to hand me over the ten thousand francs I was hoping for? And if no one once inside the house would be allowed to leave it, how could I meet Mademoiselle Geoffrey tomorrow at two o'clock in my office and receive ten thousand francs from her in exchange for the precious paper? Moreover, the longer the police stayed in this house and poked their noses about in affairs that concerned hard-working citizens like myself, why, the greater the risk would be of the matter of the stolen document coming to light. It was positively maddening. I never undressed that night, but just lay down on my bed thinking. The house was very still at times but at others I could hear the tramp of the police agents up and down the stairs, and also outside my window. The latter gave on a small dilapidated back garden, which had a wooden fence at the end of it. Beyond it were some marked gardens belonging to a Monsieur Laurent. It did not take me very long to realize that that way lay my fortune of twenty thousand francs, but for the moment I remained very still. My plan was already made. At about midnight I went to the window and opened it cautiously. I heard no noise from that direction for some time, and I bent my ear to listen. Not a sound. Either the sentry was asleep, or he had gone on his round, and for a few moments the way was free. 
Without a moment's hesitation, I swung my legs over the sill. Still no sound. My heart beat so fast that I could almost hear it. The night was very dark. A thin mist like drizzle was falling. In fact, the weather conditions were absolutely perfect for my purpose. With utmost wariness, I allowed myself to drop from the window ledge on to the soft ground below. If I was caught by the sentry, I had my answer ready. I was going to meet my sweetheart at the end of the garden. It is an excuse which always meets with the sympathy of every true-hearted Frenchman. The sentry would, of course, order me back to my room, but I doubt if he would ill-use me. The denunciation was against the landlord, not against me. Still not a sound. I could have danced with joy. Five minutes more, and I would be across the garden, and over that wooden fence, and once more on my way to fortune. My fall from the window had been light, as my room was on the ground floor, but I had fallen on my knees, and now, as I picked myself up, I looked up, and it seemed to me as if I saw Theodore's ugly face at his attic window. Certainly there was a light there, and I may have been mistaken as to Theodore's face being visible. The very next second the light was extinguished, and I was left in doubt. But I did not pause to think. In a moment I was across the garden. My hands gripped the top of the wooden fence. I hoisted myself up with some difficulty, I confess, but at last I succeeded. I threw my legs over and gently dropped down on the other side. Then suddenly two rough arms encircled my waist, and before I could attempt to free myself a cloth was thrown over my head, and I was lifted up and carried away, half suffocated and like an insentient bundle. When the cloth was removed from my face, I was half sitting, half lying, in an armchair in a strange room, which was lighted by an oil lamp that hung from the ceiling above. In front of me stood Monsieur Arthur Geoffrey, and that beast Theodore. Monsieur Arthur Geoffrey was coolly folding up the two valuable papers for the possession of which I had risked a convict ship and New Caledonia and which would have meant affluence for me for many days to come. It was Theodore who had removed the cloth from my face. As soon as I had recovered my breath, I made a rush for him, for I wanted to strangle him. But Monsieur Arthur Geoffrey was too quick and too strong for me. He pushed me back into the chair. Easy, easy, Monsieur Ratichon, he said pleasantly. Do not vent your wrath upon this good fellow. Believe me, though his action may have deprived you of a few thousand francs, they have also saved you from lasting and biting remorse. This document which you stole from Monsieur de Marsan, and so ingeniously duplicated, involved the honour of our king and our country, as well as the life of an innocent man. My sister's fiancé would never have survived the loss of the document which had been entrusted to his honour. I would have returned it to Mademoiselle to-morrow, I murmured. 
"'Only one copy of it, I think,' he retorted. "'The other you would have sold to whichever spy of the Danish or Russian governments happened to have employed you in this discreditable business.' "'How did you know?' I said involuntarily. "'Through a very simple process of reasoning, my good Monsieur Ratichon,' he replied blandly. "'You are a very clever man, no doubt, but the cleverest of us is at times apt to make mistakes. You made two, and I profited by them. Firstly, after my sister and I left you this afternoon, you never made the slightest pretense of making inquiries or collecting information about the mysterious theft of the document. I kept an eye on you throughout the evening. You left your office and strolled for a while on the case. You had an excellent dinner at the restaurant des Anglais. Then you settled down to your coffee and liquor. Well, my good Monsieur Ratichon, obviously you would have been more active in the matter if you had not known exactly where and when and how to lay your hands upon the document, for the recovery of which my sister had offered you ten thousand francs. I groaned. I had not been quite so circumspect as I ought to have been. But who would have thought? I have had something to do with police work in my day, continued Monsieur Geoffrey blandly, though not of late years. But my knowledge of their methods is not altogether rusty, and my powers of observation are not yet dulled. During my sister's visit to you this afternoon I noticed the blouse and cap of a commissionary lying in a bundle in a corner of your room. Now, though Monsieur de Massin has been in a burning fever since he discovered his loss, he kept just sufficient presence of mind at the moment to say nothing about that loss to any of the chancellerie officials, but to go straight home to his apartments in the Rue Royale and to send for my sister and for me. When we came to him he was already partly delirious, but he pointed to a parcel and a letter which he had brought away from his office. The parcel proved to be an empty box, and the letter a blank sheet of paper, but the most casual inquiry of the concierge at the chancellery excited the fact that the commissionary had brought these things in the course of the morning. That was your second mistake, my good Monsieur Ratichon. Not a very grave one, perhaps, but I have been in the police, and somehow, the moment I caught sight of that blouse and cap in your office, I could not help connecting it with the commissionary who had brought a bogus parcel and letter to my future brother-in-law a few minutes before that mysterious and unexplained altercation took place in the corridor. Again I groaned. I felt as a child in the hands of that horrid creature who seemed to be dissecting all the thoughts which had run riot through my mind these past twenty hours. It was all very simple, my good Monsieur Ratichon, now concluded my tormentor still quite amiably. Another time you will have to be more careful, will you not? You will also have to bestow more confidence upon your partner or servant. Directly I had seen that commissioner's blouse and cap, I set to work to make friends with Monsieur Theodore. 
When my sister and I left your office in the Rue Donneau, we found him waiting for us at the bottom of the stairs. Five francs loosened his tongue. He suspected that you were up to some game in which you did not mean him to have a share. He also told us that you had spent two hours in laborious writing, and that you and he both lodged at the dilapidated little inn called the Grey Cat in Passy. I think he was rather disappointed that we did not shower more questions, and therefore more emoluments upon him. Well, after I had denounced this house to the police as a Bonapartist club, and saw it put under the usual consign, I bribed the corporal of the gendarmerie in charge of it to let me have Theodore's company for the little job I had in hand and also to clear the back garden of sentries, so as to give you a chance and the desire to escape. All the rest you know. Money will do many things, my good Monsieur Ratichon. And you see how simple it all was. It would have been still more simple if the stolen documents had not been such an important one that the very existence of it must be kept a secret even from the police. So I could not have you shadowed and arrested as a thief in the usual manner. However, I have the document and its ingenious copy, which is all that matters. Would to God, he added with a suppressed curse, that I could get hold equally easily of the secret service agent to whom you, a Frenchman, were going to sell the honor of your country. Then it was that, though broken in spirit and burning with thoughts of the punishment I would mete out to Theodore, my full faculties returned to me, and I queried abruptly, What would you give to get him? Five hundred francs, he replied without hesitation. Can you find him? Make it a thousand, I retorted, and you shall have him. How? Will you give me five hundred francs now, I insisted, and another five hundred when you have the man, and I will tell you. Agreed, he said impatiently. But I was not to be played with by him again. I waited in silence until he had taken a pocketbook from the inside of his coat and counted out five hundred francs, which he kept in his hand. No, he commanded. The man, I then announced calmly, will call on me for the document at my lodgings at the hostelry of the Grey Cat tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Good, rejoined Monsieur Geoffrey. We shall be there. He made no demur about giving me the five hundred francs, but half my pleasure in receiving them vanished when I saw Theodore's bleary eyes fixed ravenously upon them. Another five hundred francs, Monsieur Geoffrey went on quietly will be yours as soon as the spy is in our hands. I did get that further five hundred, of course, for Monsieur Charles Souret was punctual to the minute, and Monsieur Geoffrey was there with the police to apprehend him. But to think that I might have had twenty thousand, and I had to give Theodore fifty francs on the transaction, as he threatened me with the police, when I talked of giving him the sack. But we were quite good friends again after that, until... But you shall judge. 
End of chapter 1, part 2. Read by Lars Rolander.